Hello, friends. Hello again, everybody. I'm so happy that you're back here again on Improv and Magic. As always, I'm your host, LD, and I am super excited about my guest today, because thanks to this man, the title of my podcast finally makes sense. My guest today is John Sterk, who, like me, has a foot in both worlds. John has studied improv at the world-famous Second City in Chicago, where he currently performs as musical director, and he's been musical director at other well-known improv shows like Comedy Sports and I.O. Not only that, John is also a magician. He performs magic all over the great city of Chicago, as well as all over the United States. And to top it all off, John is currently the national president-elect for the Society of American Magicians. You know, as we were talking, all I could think to myself was, where has this guy been all my life? <laughs> John is an amazing individual to talk to and so much fun. You'll hear us talk about our love for both improv and magic, and we even managed to find some interesting parallels between the two arts. Boy, I really hope you have fun listening to him as much as I had fun chatting with him. Get ready, folks. Here's my guest, John Sterk. Here with me now is my new friend, Mr. John Sterk. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm good, LD. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh... You were introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours uh, named Mark Mockaby, who was just on the podcast. The two of you met at the uh, improv retreat. That's uh, right. Yep. Hosted I've, I've, by... been, I've been a teacher there for, uh, well, I started at the beginning, which I think was around 2014. And I taught there for a couple years, took a little break, and uh, I've been back there the last two. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, our other mutual friends, Tara DeFrancisco and Rance Rizzuto. Oh, do I know Tara and Rance? Yes, I do. <laughs> they both, uh, they both started off, uh, here in the Chicago scene, uh, before moving to Columbus and opening their own theater. So, uh, I played with them back in the day and it was really nice when, um, they let me come and be part of the camp. You know, what's funny. Uh, this is our sixth episode, but I will tell you that in every episode that I've had, Tara and Rance's name has been brought up so many times by other well, people. Let it be. Uh, let the record show that you brought up them, not me. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, I would like to start at the very beginning with you. Uh, first of all, I'm so happy to have you on here because Thanks to you, my the title of my podcast finally makes sense. You are in the worlds of both improv and magic. Yes, and I, I have a foot in both of those worlds. Yes, as do I. Um, and I'm very excited to learn so much about you. So let's uh, let's jump right at the beginning with you. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, Plymouth, Michigan, uh, in suburban Detroit. Okay. And what was growing up for you like? Oh, I quite idyllic, I think. Um, uh, when I was going through uh, high school at uh, Plymouth Salem High School, uh, 
It has since changed its name just to Salem High School, but I graduated from Plymouth Salem High School. Uh, I was involved in band. I was involved, uh, our school had a radio station. Uh, so I did a couple of years at the radio station and I was very in, interested in politics and government. And so I did a lot of um, reporting on local government and I got to know uh, many of the local politicians just because I was the kid that would show up with a, a tape recorder um, at like city council meetings and stuff. Uh, and I also hosted a jazz program. So I would show up at a lot of the venues in uh, in and around suburban Detroit, um, interviewing people. And uh, I got to be known, um, uh, you know, again, just as a kid, radio broadcaster. And one year I even got to do a live remote broadcast from the Michigan Jazz Festival in Livonia, Michigan. Um, and so I got to meet and know many of the uh, local characters of the Detroit jazz scene through that. Was there anything in particular that got you interested in, uh, in jazz? Oh, my dad, uh, he, uh, played, uh, trumpet, um, as you know, minored in music in college and always had that, that music playing. And I wanted to, uh, play the saxophone, but the piano, uh, tended to be my primary instrument. And it wasn't until many years later, um, when I was still now living in Chicago, that I started taking up the Hammond organ uh, and playing jazz Hammond. Can you explain what jazz Hammond is for those of us okay. who don't know? So uh, if you're familiar with the sound of like a pipe organ, this is not that. This is not a pipe organ. It's an electric organ. Uh, and you would probably recognize it from like uh, a gospel church kind of sound. Mm. Okay. So that's that's where you'd find Hammonds a lot of the time. And then they worked their way into popular music. So uh, baseball organ would be started with the Hammond uh, and started at Wrigley Field here in Chicago. So oh, nice. these are just facts that I know. And now you can't unknow them. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, I play the Hammond organ and the piano around Chicago these days. Um, I took up magic when I was in college. And I came across the local magic club in Lansing, Michigan, called the Lansing Guild of Magicians. Mm. And they had a monthly meeting once, uh, you know, once a month. They had dinner at this restaurant in the back room, and after dinner, we'd have a program, whether it was somebody teaching or, you know, bring a trick. Uh, you know, so you'd have like rope trick night or coin trick night or or mind reading night and uh, show what you learn. And so since I was pretty new to magic and um, I was by far the youngest person at this in, in the club, uh, I, I got a lot of encouragement uh, and mentorship from some of the other magicians that were there. And before long, I started to uh, do like the overflow birthday party shows. And uh, I, I mean, I was a poor college kid and they're offering me a hundred bucks to do a birthday party? Yeah, I'll take that. Um, of course. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> so uh, then I started to go to um, uh, weekend conventions. We had one called Michigan Magic Day, which was like a Friday night, all day Saturday kind of thing. And there'd be a, a evening show. And then I learned about the Abbott's Magic Company, 
of Colon, Michigan, at the famous Abbott's Magic Get-Together. It's like a summer magic festival that they would have every August, and I started to attend that. Uh, and then from there, I graduated college and was looking for, you know, permanent employment. And I was just spraying resumes everywhere. This was, you know, 2007, where it was pretty close to economic uh, meltdown at that point. So, oh, yeah, hard. that thing. Yeah. Oh, remember those? <laughs> remember those times? Oh, those so, were good times, weren't they? <laughs> oh, boy. It takes me back. So, <laughs> I had applied for a job at Fun Incorporated in Chicago, which is a magic manufacturing company. And they're the makers of Royal Magic um, that you would see often. They would make uh, beginner magic tricks, beginner magic sets, uh, and do all the manufacturing uh, at the plant in Chicago. And I knew somebody who worked there through attending the Abbott's uh, Magic Week uh, get-together. So I sent in my resume, and the owner said, oh, I'll be at Abbott's this summer, which was you know, three months away. Let's plan to get lunch, and we'll talk about the job. So we did. A few weeks later, he invited me to Chicago for a second interview. And uh, in October of 2007, he offered me the job, and I moved uh, to Chicago in uh, November of 2007. So I worked at a magic manufacturing company for seven and a half years doing product development, marketing, uh, sales, and uh, having moved to a new city, I wanted to try and find some friends who weren't magicians because that's all I all I had had so far uh, being new in town. So I started taking classes, uh, improv classes at the Second City uh, here in Chicago. So that was in about 2009 and I went through the program there and I was introduced to one of the music directors, uh, a person named Stephanie McCullough. And Steph had, I had mentioned to her that I, I played the piano, uh, although it had been some years since I had been doing lessons or playing regularly. And she made a comment like, you know, you can really clean up if you play, if you're a improv music director. And I went, tell me more. <laughs> So uh, uh, 2009 is when I started to get into improv music directing. And I've been doing that now for about 13 years, uh, playing all over town for Second City, for IO, for Comedy Sports, Baby Wants Candy, Laugh Out Loud, Storytown Improv, The Annoyance Theater, The Playground Theater, uh, pretty much everywhere that had improv. Uh, and I'm still doing magic and it, uh, music directing improv to this day. So that's, that's the story so far. I can see myself geeking out with you so much about so <laughs> many things, man. <laughs> um, what, what was your degree in college that, that you graduated with? Uh, my degrees were in political theory and journalism. Mm -hmm. So to go along with that uh, interest I had in government and politics when I was in high school, I had hoped to, be a political reporter or to work uh, on campaigns. And I did internships in uh, Lansing in the state legislature. I did an internship in D.C. for a congressman. So I worked on the Hill. And then when I came back, I also worked on a campaign, a gubernatorial campaign uh, mm -hmm. for Jennifer Granholm, who was running 
at the time for re-election as governor of Michigan, and uh, we won. So wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> not going to say I had a lot to do with it, but I will. Well, you had a hand in it. You can you can take some credit for that. I'll take a little bit. You know, sure. interns win campaigns. We all know this. Yeah. So if you had to, um, if you had to share what you thought the traje- the trajectory of your life was going to be based on that degree, uh, what for you was that? I thought I would uh, be running for office, uh, public office, one day. Um, oh, really? Probably state legislature in Michigan, and you know, it would have been a life goal to uh, become a member of Congress. But hmm. um, you know, that's what twenty year olds think sometimes. Right, of course. Um, you said that you discovered uh, magic while you were in college. Mm-hmm. Around what time specifically did you discover magic? How did you discover it? And what was it like to discover this thing for the very first time? Well, uh, I was 19. I was a sophomore at Michigan State. And uh, what I had come across, I had gone to the State History Museum in downtown Lansing uh, for Statehood Day because nerd. Um, (laughs) And it also happened to be the last day of a special exhibit on magic in Michigan. And I had no idea that there was a history of magic in Michigan. And one of the museum employees was there demonstrating some simple tricks and talking about the local magic club, which uh, was the uh, uh, a chapter of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, the IBM. It was Ring 54. And uh, I happened to be there on the last show of the day, on the last day of the exhibit. So I was uh, chatting with this woman and she gave me some of the props that she was using and suggested, hey, you can use these at your Super Bowl party next week. And I thought, <laughs> well, I am going to Super Bowl party next week. Okay, I'll bring these, uh, bring these along. And they were a big hit. And I got that, that sweet, sweet rush of show business adrenaline uh, and kept going, kept it up. So, What was your idea of magic before that, that moment? Um, in the years leading up to that, David Blaine, uh, was very, very popular because he was still having his renaissance of magic specials. Right. And I, so that's, you know, what you think magic is because that's all I've seen. But once I started going to IBM ring and magic meetings and going to some clubs, I got a much greater idea of the, the large house of magic. Mm-hmm. And all the different rooms, as Eugene Berger would say. Um, and I found that the one I was most interested in being and doing myself was the comedy magic of people of, like, say, Aldo Colombini, Bob Sheets, uh, David Williamson. Uh, and that's that that was the kind of magic that I wanted to do. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Uh, were there any magicians in particular that you were like? Uh, big fans of you mentioned David Blaine, of course. Were there any others? Well, I I would say he was the only one I had known of at the time at the at the very very beginning. But um, uh, that Williams, I learned about uh, Aldo Colombini. I saw him uh, live in Michigan. Uh, Whit Hayden, Johnny Thompson, uh, uh, mentioned David Williamson, um, uh, and uh, Matt King as well. So those those were some of the early inspirations and uh, Jay Sankey as well. 
Of course. Um, uh, I think many of us uh, start off with some Sankey. So, but yeah. Oh, yeah. There. And um, I learned too that the value of how you learn magic from books versus DVDs and video, uh, because when you learn it from video, you just imitate the person that you learned uh, that, that's on the video. So for the first couple of years of, of me learning magic, I was Jay Sankey and my mom didn't even know it. <laughs> so it took a little while for me to find more influences and realize how I could try to find my own uh, voice as a magician. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've noticed that that's been a, a challenge for me over the years because, like you said, uh, you buy a DVD and you hear the way the instructor is talking and then you just kind of get accustomed to doing that same voice. Like you said, you know, you were basically Jay Sankey. Yeah, you uh, just take on the persona and you're doing a – you're parroting uh, the person that you learned it from. Right. So, but but the difference is now when you learn from books, you don't have that visual and audio cue of a person to imitate. So, when you learn from books, it forces you to interpret it in your own voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of my favorite magicians uh, was Denny Haney, and I listened to many Denny, Denny Haney uh, interviews, and he would talk about how he could tell a magician by watching whether they learn from video or from books. Hmm. Yeah. My biggest influence growing up as a kid was definitely David Copperfield. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom took me to see him when I was uh, five years old, 10 years ago. And, um, and he, it was the first time I'd ever seen a magician before. And he immediately won me over. And that became um, my, my big thing to do every single year was to see, Copperfield uh, in town back when he was touring. Of course, he doesn't tour anymore. He's uh, held up in Las Vegas. Um, and then, of course, I became big fans of, you know, David Blaine, as you mentioned, Lance Burton, um, obviously Penn and Teller and a lot of the a lot of the big names. And um, when I was a teenager, I actually was a member of uh, IBM. I belonged to a uh, ring number 45 in Miami. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, the first time I went to a magic convention. I don't know if they still do it, but they had a convention called Magic on the Beach because, you know, it's Miami. Uh, in Daytona? No, this was in Miami Beach. In Miami Beach. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if they still have that one. Yeah. Mind you, this is back in the 90s. So maybe Daytona uses the name now. I don't know. But I remember um, one of the special guests was James Randi. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I met the guy and... I have a picture somewhere of me as a young teenager with James Randi. And it was such a great experience to just be around these, for the most part, adults who were acting like kids surrounded uh, by, by toys. Um, do you still get that same childlike feeling when you're chatting with other magicians? Sure. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, even though I've been doing magic now for 20 years, I still get fooled pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, more than I thought I would, uh, having been in magic that long, not saying everything fools me, but mm -hmm. I still get fooled a good amount. And my favorite thing to do at, at conventions really, uh, and I learned this fairly early is to s just sit down next to the older guys and let them tell stories. 
Mm. Uh, I learned that a long time ago. I, it was more than once at Abbott's that I got to just pull up a chair next to Johnny Thompson, say, and just listen to him go. That's all mm. I really wanted. And occasionally you could ask a, a, a leading question. Say, hey, Johnny, uh, could you tell us a story about so-and-so? And, of course, he'll have one. Um, and, uh, uh, because they love, they love to share. I know I do. Um, I love to share stories about the characters that I've met or experiences that I've had as a performer. Um, and it's, it's an oral tradition that, uh, cannot really be, uh, replaced any other way. Absolutely. Well, you've opened this door, so let me just go ahead and ask, what was it like to uh, listen to Johnny Thompson? Oh, it's fantastic. What a great storyteller. Not only that, but he does impressions. Does he really? Um, oh, absolutely. He did. Oh, I didn't he know used that. To do, he used to do a, a spot on Di Vernon. Did he really? Oh, absolutely. Because uh, he studied with Di Vernon for many, many years. Um, and they were very close. And so he could do a pretty spot on Vernon impression. And Vernon had this kind of high nasal voice, mm. uh, and and uh, uh, Thompson could pull it off. Absolutely! Wow, amazing, amazing! Yeah, I've definitely, like all of us, have been like a big uh, Johnny Thompson fan because um, he influenced so much. If you look at every big magician, you know that at some point they worked with Johnny Thompson as far as helping them create uh, the magic. Uh, yeah. That they if do. they're smart, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do you notice any sort of differences between the magic that you saw when you discovered it and the magic that we see today? Uh, yes. Um, the magic we see these days technically is more intricate and complex and advanced than ever before. The technical aspect of magic advances much faster than the performing aspect. Hmm. Um, and they said it uh, 15 years ago, and they still say it today, that um, the uh, young people um, who are coming up in magic are more technically proficient than ever before. But they are rarely as um theatrically proficient because they're so used to just learning the moves, putting it on uh, social media and that's it. But they don't perform for real life people, which is where the theatrical experience comes from. Hmm. So you have a deficit, very highly technically skilled, but the performing theatrical as aspect is way behind. Which of those two do you think is most important? Uh, being technically oh, the proficient? The, the theatrical. theatrical. Absolutely. You can be a very ham-fisted, not very technically skilled magician and still rock the house as when you've got your performer chops. You don't mm -hmm. need a lot of technical skill to be an entertaining magician. Uh, magicians, I find, and I, I, w I wish I could credit this quote. I know it's not mine. But I can't remember who uh, who said it right now. But magicians tend to be uh, gifted in one of three ways. Creatively, 
and and that they're good at coming up with their own magic. Technically, they can do the hard knuckle busting stuff or theatrically, and they can entertain a crowd with with nothing, essentially. And the really good magicians are two out of th- two out of three. Um, and the great magicians are three out of three. Mm. Uh, Williamson is an example. He's a knuckle buster. He can do the hard stuff. He can create his own magic. And he's a brilliant uh, entertainer. So he's he's a rare example, I think, of uh, all, all three in one. Mm. You know, I so 100% agree with you on that. I mean, I think it's true. A lot of magicians forget that if you don't have the theatricality, if you don't have, whether it's a story or just a great way to present, sure, the trick is is great and it'll fool people. But if you add that theatricality, it becomes something more, which is if, something if that I love. If you are technically proficient, say uh, uh, you are very technically proficient and you're doing this really hard knuckle-busting ace assembly that you invented, but it's boring as hell. <laughs> what what's the value in it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um you are so going to be my new best friend. <laughs> so so let's uh let's talk about Second City. Um what was and I know you kind of mentioned it, but now let's really dive into that since this is improv and magic. Oh, sure, um, yeah, something yeah. something for the other half. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it that motivated you to study improv and, of all places, Second City? Well, um, I wanted to study improv because uh, I knew it would be a useful tool for me as a magician to have that skill, and it definitely was. Two, I started with Second City because uh, in Chicago, at least at the time, they were the biggest. They were the, the most famous name. Uh, they had all the famous alumni like Ackroyd and Belushi, John Candy, all those names. Um, so, uh, and also because they were the biggest, they were the most accessible. Like you could easily sign up uh, for um, improv classes at any point during the year rather than having to wait for class one to start. Um, so, uh, that's where I started just kind of because it was the biggest, the, the most accessible and the, and the most well-known, uh, to me at the time. Hmm. So that's why I started there. Um, eventually went through the IO program as well. So when you jumped into improv at the time, was it just something to complement your magic? I would say, uh, both that something that uh, enhance my magic performance, but also a social aspect. Hmm. Uh, like I said, I was new in town. Uh, I didn't really know too many people outside of the magic world where I spent most of my time. And I just wanted to try to get to know some other people who weren't magicians and had something else in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did. What were some of the things that you learned in improv that really made you see that this is something really special? Well, um, one of the things I think I learned most, and it it was harder to learn, was that um, you don't have to force the funny. Mm. Keep the scenes grounded and real, and the funny will follow. 
because you certainly see a lot of times where people are trying to force it and it and it bombs. Oh like, yes. Oh, I'm having a nice scene here, and then suddenly I'm going to put a twist in it that doesn't that is inorganic. It doesn't flow with the rest of it. So I'm suddenly going to pull out a gun. I'm suddenly going to, you know, the Michael Scott, uh, exactly, uh, <laughs> the kind of thing. Or I'm, I'm going to throw in a, a, se- a sex joke that uh, is completely out of place, or uh, you know, drop some swears where mm-hmm. they don't really fit. Because if mm-hmm. I swear, obviously it'll, it'll be funny then. Um, so no, the 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 important lesson to learn, aside of course from the yes and principle, is. Don't force it. Be in the moment. Don't be trying to plan ahead. And you and your scene partner will find the funny together. Yeah. Um, I uh, teach improv as well at my home theater, Just the Funny. And our level one class, you see it all the time. You see students coming in and they always come in with the attitude of, well, I'm funny. And then, of course, you see it happen. And I think they kind of discover for themselves that if they come in thinking that they're going to make this the funniest damn scene ever, it usually ends up not happening that way. And we actually have a saying that's very similar to what you said. We tell our students, don't try to find the funny, let the funny find you. Yes. And in addition to that, every improv scene also doesn't have to be funny either. You know, I mean, and granted, we're a theater called Just the Funny, so it kind of sets up uh, the wrong expectation. But then again, some of my favorite improv scenes have been those where we're not laughing, but we're really experiencing something really, really precious, which which I love seeing every single time. Have you ever thought about why we laugh? I've spent time. Uh, I've spent time thinking about that. Uh, are you talking in general or in improv specifically? Actually, it's a it's a principle that I learned from a magician, uh, Jeff Williamson, who lives in okay. Florida. Uh, and Jeff is also a comedy writer. He uh, wrote a lot of jokes for David Letterman uh, back in the day. Oh, cool! And he's a great comedy magician. And I he gave a he, I I, rem, I was talking to him at a convention one time, and he was holding court, and he talked about why do people laugh? And there's usually uh, it's either because of uh, nervousness, surprise, or familiarity. Mm. So uh, part of uh, what I think about if, if you're trying to find the funny, uh, oftentimes, too, funny is in the details. Yes. So um, the more specific you can get the funnier it will be. And this is especially true if you're working for like a corporate crowd or a convention crowd. Um, so it, uh, it, it often happens where I've been doing a buyout shows for like a company company party and we will send them a form to fill out mm-hmm. of what are some buzzwords around your office? Who are some of the uh, popular characters around your office? What's the CEO's name? What's everybody knows that the CEO likes uh, is really passionate about this hobby. Tell us what it is. And if we can just just the most casual mention of those things that everybody else in our audience is familiar with, will get huge reactions. Mm. It's like, oh, everybody knows that Tom is really passionate about golf. 
tell. Oh, Tom, what a great day out on the course today. You hit 18 holes in one. And then the crowd goes wild because of familiarity. Mm. Man, I, I, you know, it's so funny. I've never thought of it that way. And, and wow, I just got schooled. I mean, I, I love that. I love no, that. Well, you know, I, uh, I am a, f- a faculty member uh, after all. So <laughs> just saying, <laughs> Just, I mean, I, I've got my credentials. Uh, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> so in talking about yes and uh, and just being able to just uh, go with it and let whatever uh, creative thing happens, how have you been able to use that in complement to your magic? Oh, oh, but absolutely is. Uh, I'm the type of performer who often brings people up from the audience mm-hmm. to be uh, spectator volunteers. And they will create so many funny moments. And this uh, goes back to something I learned from Terry Seabrook, a British magician. Uh, Terry Seabrook worked many of these working man's clubs uh, in the 70s and 80s in England. And they were very rowdy places uh, where you would have the magician on the same bill as like a stripper. <laughs> so, no, really, like the magician no, I would, believe op- you. I believe would, you. would open and be the MC for this variety show and they'll often be strippers or burlesque. And so they're very rowdy, bawdy places. Mm. And he worked so many of them and he discovered that Uh, The spectators, if you keep your ears open, the spectators will give you funny things to say through their reactions, or they will have funny uh, reactions or answers to leading questions. And so this then becomes, how can I recreate this situation next time? Uh, If Mm. Maybe if I just have them stand on my left instead of my right. Maybe if I phrase their instructions in a way that they interpret it to do a funny reaction every time. Uh, these are all the the minor um, differences, the minor variables that we can control to create a funny effect. Hmm. Is that your um, is that your methodology for handling hecklers? Uh, you know what? I don't really have one. And you would think a guy as uh, twerpy and nerdy as me would have many hecklers. Uh, but here's, here's the, the hecklers come in in two different ways. Either uh, often they are a drunk person and they have lost the ability to control themselves. Right. That requires a different uh, way to handle than the other kind of hecklers who want to be part of the show. And in that, in both of those cases, usually what happens is they will seize upon a crack in the wall that you have built. So if you leave a moment of silence too long, for example, change your timing so that the the crack is sealed and the hecklers have no way to get in. Hmm. Uh, If it's a drunk person who is generally not in control of themselves, there are ways to dismiss that where I still have the control and I still have the power. Interesting. Um, So, so part of one way to do this, uh, if you're working a room where there's a microphone available, always use the microphone. Don't say, Oh no, I'm, I'm loud enough. I'm fine. 
always use the microphone because he who has the microphone has the power. Hmm. Should there be an incident where as a heckler who's either drunk or wants to be part of the show, they don't have the microphone. I do. I am in control. And I can use that power to shut it down before it gets out of hand. Hmm. If I don't have a microphone and they don't have a microphone, now we're on equal footing and I have to work a lot harder to, to maintain the power. But if I have the microphone, I will always have the power first. Mm, I love that. I love that. Um, any uh, really bad heckler stories from your days of performing? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I will tell you the story of the worst show I ever did. Okay. Um, I was booked to perform at a block party in Chicago on the Northwest side. And I knew from the moment I arrived that this was going to be trouble. Uh, because so for the block party, they block off uh, the street, uh, you know, at, at two ends. <laughs> and inside, within the blocked off part, they had set up a bouncy castle. They had set up a uh, DJ who is blaring music. <laughs> so I, when I arrived, I'm like, all right, for me to do this show, the DJ's got to stop. And that's going to make the teenagers upset. And it did. And also at one end, they had uh, like this outdoor video game station where they oh, had these, these big screen TVs that were uh, and the sound was blaring from those. And I'm like, wait, all right. So for me to do this show, the, the DJ has to stop and the video games have to stop. That's going to make people upset. Uh, <laughs> and by people, I mean children. Yeah. Uh, teen, uh, older children, teenagers are going to be mad because now I have to do a magic show for the, the, the younger kids, like the under 12s. And yes, they were upset, but they were not the main problem that I had. Really? The main problem that I had was an eight-year-old heckler who heckled me like he was a grown man. <laughs> oh my gosh. So the things I would normally say to a grown man heckler, I could not say to this eight-year-old. <laughs> Come to find out also that it was this kid's mom was the one who hired me. Oh, no. <laughs> it was the worst show I'd ever had. Um, I uh, the If you ever read Silly Billy's book, like the, the last resort, for a kid who just won't behave is to stop the show, get down on a knee and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Hmm. I put, you know, the mic, turn the microphone off. I get down on the knee and I have to look this kid in the eye and say, look, this is causing a problem for my show. I have only 20 minutes left and I would like to do a good show for the younger kid. You always try to say, do it for the younger kids. Right. Uh, well, with this kid, I had to stop the show twice and take a knee, and he would not he would not behave. So I finally get to the end of the show, thank God, and I'm starting to pack up, and I'm thinking, I've got to tell this mom to knock 50 bucks off the bill, because it was my failure to control this show. And I'm waiting for her to come over with the check, and she doesn't. She sends another one of the moms to give me the check. 
I think she was too embarrassed to face me mm. because her son had caused such problems during the show. So she thought that it was a, she was embarrassed, I think, to come face me because her son, her son was so uh, out of control. I thought I was the one who let it get out of control. So basically at that point, uh, I accepted the check, packed up my gear and got the hell out of there. <laughs> that was that was the worst show I'd, I've ever had. I won't let you suffer alone, so I'll go ahead and share uh, my worst performance ever. Um, and this was actually when I was about 17 years old, but it's still fresh in my mind to this day. Um, I got called by this woman who ran a, a homeless shelter. And uh, she said that she had gotten a hold of my business card. How? I don't know. She didn't bother to tell me. But she told me that they were going to have um, – they wanted a magician to come over and perform for the children that were there. And she emphasized that because they're a homeless shelter, my performance would be seen as a charitable event, so I wouldn't be getting paid for it. And uh, she kept repeating that like three times. She really wanted to drive home that I wasn't getting paid. Um, but, of course, I took the gig because, you know, I'm 17 years old and I'm thinking, well, what the hell? A, a gig's a gig. And plus, I thought this would just be a generally nice thing to do. You know, these are homeless children. You know, they're, uh, their families have fallen on hard times. So, of course, I was very happy to entertain the kids. So my mom drops me off and I'm there lugging my big magic box full of stuff with my show. And uh, I come inside and I'm welcomed by the uh, the lady who called me on the phone. I set up everything and they they bring in the children. They're all sitting down on the floor and I'm ready to begin. And my expectation was that these children were going to be so appreciative of me. You know, I thought this was going to be something right out of a Disney movie that these kids who are experiencing tough times would be so happy and appreciative that a magician had taken time out of his busy schedule, you know, the busy schedule of a 17 year old and taken yeah, time to entertain them. You kids should be grateful that I'm here. Exactly. That Are was they kinda... ever? <laughs> so I start performing my first trick and before the trick is even finished, all the kids together in unison, boo, just like that. And it really, caught me off guard. I'm like, what, what the hell is happening here? You know? And so it got so bad and every single trick just louder and louder, just booing and booing and booing. Um, there were adults in the room. They didn't bother to help out at all. They didn't Never say, do. Hey, Nope. They didn't say, Hey kids, come on. He's trying to do something nice. No, they just, they just stood there and were like, Oh, we're, we're enjoying watching this teenager die a slow death. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll never forget that moment, but, uh, I think that's part of what we do. I think if you want to be a magician and even an improviser, you do kind of have to accept that you're going to have bad shows like this. Would you agree? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, another uh, one of my comedy heroes is Conan O'Brien. Oh, I love Conan O'Brien. And uh, Conan, I heard him on a podcast once. Uh, this is this is a, several years ago before his current hit podcast, but he was being interviewed and he talked about how he was getting down on himself one night for not doing such a great show with the, with the old late night show on NBC. And he uh, got some words of advice about that. You can't look at your work 
in such an individual way. You have to look at it as simply one tile in a mosaic. Mm. So to judge yourself on one tile is really not the complete story. You have to look at the whole body of work. Um, then again, there's also the saying of you're only as good as your last show. <laughs> so I did a, a library show yesterday and I was adequate. <laughs> okay. So, but I know that I can't uh, uh, look at that as the sole effect of my worth or talent as a magician, even though I had only one adequate show. Uh, yeah. The next one will be better um, because you learn and you grow. And that's the fact of it. Yeah. Well, a quote from uh, Sharna, Sharna Halpern is that, you know, scenes are like Kleenex. There's always, there's another one in the box. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get to become the musical director of Second City? Well, uh, uh, let me uh, couch that comment just a little bit. I am okay. a, musical, a musical director at Second City. I'm not the musical director. We have staff. Okay. Uh, and so um, I started with uh, taking a uh, intensive weekend seminar on improv music directing way back in 09. And at the end of it, the only advice that we were given really to just get better at being a music director is just to go out and do it. So at the time we had a very popular um, internet uh, forum called Chicago Improv Community. And I could post on there and say, music director for hire. Uh, I believe my exact words were, have keyboard will travel. <laughs> uh, and so that's how I got my first gig as a improv music director, as a sketch music director. And I've been doing that kind of work now for 13 years. So uh, after the pandemic, after the lockdown, we, lo we had lost a lot of work during the lockdown when you can't have live theater. So uh, the IO theater during the pandemic closed permanently, which was one of my biggest clients. And I was looking for some more work. And I happened to know the, one of the head music directors at the training center at second city uh, and was in touch with them. And uh, when they uh, opened, uh, they had a cattle call for people to apply to be a music director for the training center uh, I applied and with as much experience as I've had over 13 years with uh, all the different theaters, um, I got the job. So I joined the faculty um, of music directors at Second City. And so I teach um, a workshop for each of the levels in the improv program, the conservatory, the graduate program. I also teach workshops in the Improv for Actors uh, uh, course, as well as the Improv for Anxiety, hmm. uh, as well as uh, sometimes for drop-in classes and jams, uh, st uh, student grad graduation reviews. Uh, so uh, for a music director, rather than being in just sort of one track, I span all of the tracks. Wow. Amazing. You know, I love watching musical directors and improv shows. So when you are playing the music for a scene, what is it that you're trying to incorporate or how are you trying to help the scene through your music? 
I'm trying to enhance the emotional resonance of the scene. So I, uh, to put the, put it in another way, uh, you know how like in Star Trek, the Vulcans are all pure logic and no emotion. Mm-hmm. A music director has to be hypersensitive to the emotion of the scene. And that's what I seize on usually uh, to provide underscoring for the scene. The underscore, it's like uh, writing the score of a movie while you're watching it. Mm. So if we have a scene that's dramatic, if we have a scene that's happy, if we have a scene that's sad, if we have a scene where one of the characters is very angry, um, those are all emotions I can seize on to, uh, to, to enhance that emotion through music. Lovely. What has your experience been um, helping out at the, at the improv retreat with Tara and Rance? Oh, I have a great time. Uh, I've been, that's why I've been doing it for so long. Um, what they've created is such a supportive environment that, uh, and we try to get the people to understand that this is improv. It is, and you're all learning. So it is okay to fail. This is the safest place for you to fail. So leave it all out of the field, give it a hundred percent. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. We learn from our failures more than we learn from our successes. I love that so much. Uh, yeah, and it is. I cannot think of it as a more apt uh, proverb for the study of improv. Yeah, I think there is a proverb. I forget who said it or what specific how it specifically it goes, but one of the best teachers is is failure. And I love that in improv. You know, I, I'm always sharing with my students: if you fail, it's not because you suck. It's part of this learning process. And, you know, even to this day, I mean, you and I doing shows for so many years, we're going to have failures, but, you know, just like you said, we can't look at that one mosaic as, as Conan says, it's all about, yeah. It is just as applicable to magic as well. If you have a trick that, uh, flops or something fails, um, you will either, you will learn from the experience. I'll give you a personal example. Please do. So one of, one of my favorite uh, routines to do is the thumb tie mm. because not a lot of people do it. It's an old, it's an old trick. And most of the magicians uh, that you see working are more interested in what's new than what's old. That is I so true. Long, I learned a long time ago to be interested in what's old because uh, at least at the time I started doing the thumb tie, I didn't know anybody else in town who did it. So I knew I would be unique. Well, one one night, uh, I am going to go perform the thumb tie, and uh, the little special something is not in my pocket. Uh oh! I it's not there. Um, I forgot to put it in there, so I had to improvise my way out of this. Uh, and I did. I managed to do the thumb tie routine gimmickless. Really? I do not. I've do not wish to really repeat that experience. <laughs> uh, there were some atmospheric conditions that uh, uh, I, I certainly traded on in order to accomplish this effect. Um, namely, it was very, very dark in the house uh, where it was also very, very bright on stage. Mm. So I can go into the house and have people touch the sticky tape and make sure it's sticky 
and then do a little something special. As I'm turning around, big move covers the small in the dark. You can do a very big move uh, 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 in the dark to cover a fairly small action. So that's what I traded on to accomplish this effect. And when I came off the stage um, and people were like, hey, the thumb tie was a little different tonight. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, guys, uh, I didn't have the thing in my pocket. Um, I didn't use a gimmick. And they all went, what? You just <laughs> did that gimmickless? And I became, you know, a bit of a legend that day. So uh, that uh, uh, both I learned how to deal with a failure and how to prevent a failure in that one moment. So there you have it. But what, what I think is also great is that you made this wonderful discovery, too, that if need be, you could do the thumb tie gimmickless. Have you ever done it gimmickless after that? On purpose? No. <laughs> uh, it, it was it was it is hard work. And uh, it I would much rather make the work easier so I can focus on the performance than have to have too much of my brain worried about the work. Hmm. So on purpose, no, I have not repeated that, but <laughs> I could if I had to. <laughs> but what a great discovery. I love that you made that discovery. And it just goes to show you how, you know, failures are not always failures as we see it. Failures can lead to something great. And usually they always do in improv and in magic. Exactly uh, right. Yeah. Uh, something that no one else can see right now, but I can see is that you're wearing a very beautiful black polo shirt. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it has the insignia of the Society of American Magicians. That's right. How did you join Sam? Well, uh, it's S-A-M, first of all. You never call it Sam. Uh, that's My apologies. A, that, that'll be a dollar fine. Um <laughs> Uh, and it's always, uh, our motto is M-U-M, -M, and it's never mum. Uh, that's the other thing you should know. Um, okay. Well, I joined the SAM in first in 2007 uh, at the Abbott's get-together. Uh, there were two past national presidents uh, that I knew there. Uh, the first one was Hank Morehouse, who in Michigan uh, was a legend and a booster of me. He was the guy that uh, hired me to perform at the get-together my first time. He's also the guy that referred me to do a whole summer as a street performer in northern Michigan. Oh, wow. Um, so he got me that gig. It was it was a graduate school in, uh, in performing because I did six shows, seven days a week, outdoors for pedestrians, essentially. And so Hank uh, uh, signed my membership application, as well as a guy named George Schindler, who is from New York. He is the dean of the Society of American Magicians. So I have my uh, my had my membership application signed by uh, a great past president, uh, two past presidents, and the dean. Uh, so uh, I got uh, I wanted to join the SAM uh, because I wanted to be part of all magic organizations. And in Chicago, uh, I took a little break from being involved in clubs because I kept getting asked to teach. And I didn't feel like, I thought I was too young. I didn't have enough to say yet to be a teacher. 
So when I, I finally got some more years under my belt, I felt I was ready to get involved back with the magic organizations. And in the landscape of Chicago, uh, the SEM chapter at the time was the weakest. It was the oldest one, chartered in 1919. And at the time, it was the one that was having the least attendance and energy. The guy who had been the president, uh, he had been the president for 10 years, which is too long. And he was burnt out and just needed somebody to pick up the torch. So I did. And in three years, I turned the club around to uh, winning uh, Assembly Growth Award for 2015 and 2017. Um, and uh, people at the national level noticed how I turned this club around. And it encouraged me to sort of climb the ladder, as it were. So I started to I uh, I've I both volunteered and was elected to be the regional vice president for the Midwest for two years, and then uh, they encouraged me to go uh, up the up the ladder even more. So uh, in the last three years, I've been the second national second VP, national first VP. I'm currently the national president-elect, and uh, as uh, in uh, late July of 2023, at our convention in New Orleans, I will become the 107th national president of the SAM. Uh, it's funny to think that uh, the same job was held by Harry Houdini a mere 100 years ago, and now it's me. Uh, so clearly, standards have changed. <laughs> But I mean, you got to feel incredibly honored to be the 107th national president. It's it's very honoring and also very humbling to have such a austere, um, rich history behind me. Uh, the SAM is the oldest magic society in the world. We were chartered in 1902. And uh, what's even more special is this summer, we are publishing for the first time a book about our complete history. It's called The Society of American Magicians, The History of Magic in America. And it, it uh, was written by David Goodsell, who was a longtime editor of the MUM magazine, which is our monthly magazine. And uh, it gets released this summer. And uh, uh, I guess I make it uh, in the book in the list of presidents uh, to date. So I, I'll be at the end of the line as the most recent president that gets published in this book. So. Uh, there it is. There's my legacy. Awesome. Awesome. Where can we find that book once it's released? Ah, you can uh, get some information now at uh, magicsam.com slash history book, or just visit our website at magic, S-A-M, magicsam.com. Uh, and the pre-orders will be opening on July 1st, 2023. Uh, we'll have two editions, a deluxe edition and a standard edition the deluxe comes with a bunch of digital downloads and perks. And if you're an SAM member and you get the standard edition, it still comes with an extra download for uh, just for members. So uh, you can check that out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, you are such a fascinating human being, John. <laughs> you well, really thanks. are. Uh, you know, on paper, I guess I am, but uh, <laughs> maybe in person, not as much. Yeah. So as you look back, at everything that you've gone through in your time making it as a magician and as an improviser. And now here you are 
president-elect of uh, National SAM. What comes to your mind? What thoughts and what feelings come to you as you reflect on all of these years and where you are now? Well, each year, the national president gets to select a theme for their presidential year. And the theme I've selected is magic is for everyone. Mm. Uh, because uh, uh, we have experienced recently and we continue to, in the improv world, a, a renaissance and a changing uh, with an emphasis on diversity and inclusion. Um, magic always has been a bit behind the social times in that respect. So I want to bring some of that to my time as president um, uh, and uh, do some focus on diversity and inclusion issues. Uh, I think anyone, it's not news to anyone that magic is a very uh, male, white dominated space. And in order to change it, we have to talk about it. Uh, and so that's a conversation I hope to be having throughout the year. That's wonderful. And you know, what I think is also great is that because we're in the world now of the internet and social media, I find that there, there is sort of that renaissance happening where now we're seeing that there's a lot more people of diverse uh, diversity that are getting into magic. We're now seeing more black magicians. We're seeing more women magicians. We're seeing more Hispanic and Asian and LGBTQ plus uh, magicians. Um, do you feel like social media and the internet have definitely helped magic in that way? Uh, yes, because it has made uh, magic more accessible in that before the internet revolution, the only way you could learn about magic was from a book from your library, or if you were lucky enough to have a chapter of the SAM or the IBM uh, or a magic shop where you live. We have fewer chapters today. We have fewer uh, brick and mortar magic shops today. Uh, but the, so the internet has become the place to make those connections. And uh, we at SAM have created a number of online communities uh, to try to foster and encourage that engagement. We have our uh, if you're a member, we have our private uh, social media platform. It's sort of Facebook, LinkedIn like uh, where we have a wall and can post messages to each other. We have virtual meetings that we couldn't do before uh, the internet revolution. So if you don't have a chapter where you live, say, that you can be involved in, you can join us over Zoom once a month and be a participant. Uh, we've even established uh, earlier this year, for the first time, an all-Spanish language uh, meeting. Oh, that's so, amazing. So for so many people in North America who don't have a chapter where they live. Uh, Puerto Rico, I'm thinking Puerto Rico, Texas, Miami, California, Arizona, New Mexico, these places that have a heavy Spanish-speaking population now have a place that they can do virtual uh, magic meetings in Spanish. Um, so that that is the newest thing that we've created, and we're not done yet. That is so amazing, and I, I, really, I really applaud you for that. You know, and magic really is for everyone. It really is. And so is improv. That's right. <laughs> what is the Chicago Magic Lounge? Oh, well, that is a, uh, a public theater that I helped establish in 2015. Uh, we started off renting a theater one night a week, but it got so popular they had us do two nights. 
And then that got so popular, uh, we were approached by an investor. Uh, so uh, there's, uh, we opened the uh, freestanding Chicago Magic Lounge building in uh, March of 2018. Um, and I remained uh, working there full time until uh, December of 2018. And then I started backing away and uh, uh, it's still going strong. I'm not involved with it anymore, but uh, it is uh, one of the public theaters where you can see magic on a regular basis in Chicago. We also have uh, recently opened the Rhapsody Theater, which is in the Rogers Park neighborhood that's uh, owned and operated by Dr. Ricardo Rosencrantz, the physician magician who presents uh, a different type of magic experience. It's a, a much more theatrical experience with a um, uh, with a intermission, uh, as well as hosting uh, classical music performances. Oh wow! Uh, we all, in Chicago, we also have the uh, the Palmer House. Uh, uh, Dennis Watkins performs his show, one man show, The Magic Parlor, uh, at the famous Palmer House Hotel. Uh, so we have so much magic in Chicago uh, that I, you know, I, I and I'm biased. I'll admit. Uh, I think we're really uh, fast becoming the magic capital. Uh, second only to coal in Michigan, of course. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I actually do follow the Rhapsody, the Rhapsody Theater on Instagram, and that theater is gorgeous. Absolutely it, gorgeous. It, it is. It, it looks just as beautiful in person. And what's uh, really special about that place is the, the the building is a former vaudeville theater that often hosted magic. So it is sort of come full circle around back to its original purpose to, to present magic to the public. Absolutely amazing. John, I have one final question for you, and this has been such an amazing time, but here's my final question, and this can apply to anything you want. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Keep trying. Uh, there's, again, I'm, I'm quoting so many people today, but there is a great speech by Ira Glass, the NPR host, uh, that you can look up on YouTube about the creative arts and the creative process. It's hard because we get into the art, be it improv, music, magic, whatever, whatever it is, we get into the art because we have good taste. And we struggle when we start to create that art because our taste outweighs our talent at that point. And so we get frustrated that the art that we create is not as good as our taste wants it to be. So the struggle there is to fight against your inclination to stop making art that doesn't match your taste. You have to push through. It's easier said than done, but you have to push through and keep improving and keep growing. And then someday your art will match your taste. I'm not saying that I've reached that point. I'm just saying that I, I, I learned to push through. And it's a hard lesson to learn, but I promise if you stick with it, you'll get there. Amazing. John, you are going to be quickly my new best friend. Thank no. you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, John. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. This was a blast. My pleasure, LD. Let me give one last push uh, for any of the uh, 
uh, magicians who are listening, please join us at magicsam.com. Uh, we would love to have you and join our community. If you're an improviser and uh, make it to Chicago, uh, come see us at Piper's Alley at the Second City. Uh, get involved as much as you can. If you are so inclined, I can travel and do uh, music improv workshops. So for that, you can learn about uh, things on my, my website, which is johnsturk.com, J-O-H-N-S-T-U-R-K. Uh, let me know if you want me to come to your city and do a workshop, uh, do a magic lecture. Uh, let me know if you just want me to come and visit you uh, in person, because I'll probably do it. Oh, I'm definitely going to put you up on that offer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, John. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Your art will match your taste if you just keep at it. I couldn't agree with that more. This was such an enjoyable conversation for me, and I hope it was for you too. Thanks so much, John. It was great talking to you. If you want to find out more about this incredible guy, visit his website at johnsturk, that's S-T-U-R-K, dot com, where you can find out about his performances and how to contact him for workshops. And to learn more about the Society of American Magicians, visit magicsam.com for information about how you can join America's oldest magic organization and learn more about their communities. And of course, remember to visit my website, togetherbymyself.com, where you can learn more about my solo improv shows and my improv workshops. Thanks so much to John Sturk and to all of you. Have a great day. And catch you next time on Improv and Magic. <laughs>